there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you're a liberal arts major or someone who's already graduated with a liberal arts degree and you are stressed out because you don't think you're going to be competitive in today's super tech-focused workforce, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a senior editor-at-large at LinkedIn, the social network for professionals, and he's also the author of a fantastic new book called You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Degree. But before I introduce you to George Anders, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that we blast out on Monday mornings to give you a sneak peek at the new episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is George Anders, a senior editor-at-large at LinkedIn, where he writes articles, helps to shape editorial strategy, and participates in new product development. George started his career as a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, where he shared eventually in the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. Over the years, he has written for a wide range of magazines and digital properties on topics ranging from Wall Street to the rise of the digital economy. George is also the author of five business books, including his latest, You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Degree. His 2003 book about Hewlett-Packard, Perfect Enough, was a New York Times bestseller. George, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready ready to go? Wonderful. And I want our young listeners to know that they should check out the show notes for this episode to see if George's Espresso Shots interview in which we dig into what are the skills that someone like George is looking for in aspiring young journalists who want to work at a place like LinkedIn or want to break into the more traditional media are looking for, what are the life experiences, your educational background, all of that. Check out show notes to see if that Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. But now we are going to get into George's career and what he is doing right now as a senior editor-at-large at LinkedIn. Perhaps before we get into that specific job, George, we could have you share with our young listeners a bit of background about the editorial team at LinkedIn. How large is it? What's its primary purpose? In other words, how would you liken it, if you would at all, to more of a traditional newsroom, perhaps on a smaller scale than where you used to work at the Wall Street Journal? So let's start with some things that are eternal and classic, and we do them the same way that legacy organizations do, and then we'll move on to some things that are distinctive. So we have slightly more than 60 people working on our editorial team. It's a very global team. We have outposts in London, Paris, Munich, India, China, Japan, Australia, and of course, the US and Latin America. 
a lot of what we do is to create a daily news summary that's a great way for people who are just starting their workday to get up to speed on the headlines and we'll customize it for individual geographies. We have some ability to customize it for industries as well. So there's a version that goes out in Japanese and Chinese and English and on and on and on. So that's very similar to what I had at the Wall Street Journal, where one of the early jobs I had was to write the front page worldwide news summary. Particularly for people with a business focus, that ability to go into that nine o'clock meeting, having had a two-minute, four-minute update on the events of the world, you just feel prepared. Otherwise, you come in and someone makes a reference and you're the one person in the room who just has that puzzled look on the face. So that's a way to, to sharpen people up and also helping them feel well prepared. So that's a piece of what we do. We also have rankings of top companies using proprietary LinkedIn data about where people are looking for jobs the most intently, the top startups, and we do a bunch of feature coverage. And that's very similar to what I used to do at the Wall Street Journal. In fact, I spent a bunch of time at the Wall Street Journal writing about Amazon and getting to know Jeff Bezos. And then I come back at LinkedIn and to our surprise, Amazon showed up as the number one company on where people wanted to work, even though Obviously, the Amazon experience is not for everyone. So I went and did an in-depth feature and shadowed people who were coming into Amazon and talked to the people who are full-time interviewers and felt I had the same level of access and freedom that I would have had at the journal and in some ways was even able to wiggle a little deeper inside the organization. So those are very familiar things. Let me take you to something we do that's quite different from a lot of legacy organizations. We place a huge emphasis on community. We don't just write stories and then throw them over the wall and let people deal with them. We try very much to use our stories as a way to get a conversation going among readers. And one of the things I've learned writing for LinkedIn is that rather than spending a month and a half trying to learn everything about a subject, I'll do my stories on a shorter timeline. And sometimes I'll just pose a question at the end that will ask people, what do you know about this field? And the quality of the comments that we get, the depth of the conversation is absolutely terrific. And that's something that our structure with everyone being digitally connected and with everyone having identified by line of work lets us do things you can't in a traditional media role. I'll just give you a short example. I'm doing a series called The Gender Ladder that uses LinkedIn data about male and female career tracks to look at different fields. And I did one looking at the rise of the female MD. We're not that far globally from a stage where more than half of all doctors will be women. We've already crossed that threshold in much of Latin America. The U.S. and Europe are getting close. Japan is lagging behind. And we ended up getting just a great conversation from doctors, people who know doctors mostly as patients, about how gender roles have changed in medicine over the years. And I had enough to start the conversation in my article. But it was really the involvement from the whole LinkedIn community that made that a more interesting package. Wow, that is very interesting. I have a follow-up question, though, for you regarding a comment that you made that by ending your LinkedIn piece with a question, that was something you can't do at more of the legacy news organizations. And I'm curious why not, considering just about all of them are online. Couldn't they do the same thing in their stories? So to some extent, they can and they can try. But a lot of them have a problem that the people who dominate the comment section are just angry, frustrated people that want to go to war. And I've seen top organizations like Forbes just shut down their comment section because it became so toxic. I've seen the Wall Street Journal create much more of a barrier, if you will, to keep the junky comments out. 
Because on our site, people don't use pseudonyms, they use their professional name and their place of employment, there's much more a sense of this is where you have a professional conversation. And there are other platforms that are spectacular if you want to be angry and thunder. That's not what we do. We want to have the kind of conversation that helps people move forward on an issue as opposed to just throw rocks at each other. And I think that's part of our design that makes LinkedIn a, a safe and thoughtful place to have a conversation. That's a really interesting and important distinction. So, George, can you take us into a typical day for you as a senior editor at large at LinkedIn? What are your responsibilities? What are you doing on any given day? So each day is its own story, but I'll, I'll pick today as a representative one that touches on some things. So the day starts at 8 o'clock with a global team meeting. We're all hooked up by video conference. And we have discussions of coverage areas that are relevant to our different teams. So today, our Brazil team led the conversation. And we talked a lot about how to prioritize time, how to keep a grip on your schedule. Simple, basic stuff, but it was really interesting hearing how priorities are different around the world and tips that colleagues could share. So that's part of the team building stuff. Looking more outward, I have a story that I want to write today that draws off of a new book about artificial intelligence speech assistants. You may think of these as Cortana or Siri or Alexa, the Amazon, Apple, and Google products, Microsoft too. I've got some thoughts to share on that. I'll sit down at a keyboard and write that up and then publish that. We've got a team meeting for my colleagues in one area that have developed a really interesting product that they're ready to launch. I help do some advisory work for that and help build out some of the content. So we'll be gathering for a meeting there. And that really touches the, the three areas where I spend the most time, doing my own writing, being supportive to team members, you know, for better or worse, had a lot of years in journalism, and there's some things I've seen that can be good to share with people and some level of coaching, and then being involved on building out new products. So the one I'm working on the most now takes the job interview process and demystifies it. We provide coaching, uh, essentially interview prep, that people can watch 90-second videos and then be much more up to speed about why certain questions get asked in interviews and what the right strategy to use is on them. And the goal is for people to be a little less frightened of the job interview and a little more effectively prepared. Fantastic. And LinkedIn has a number of career-related products that are on your site. We do. And we have a whole LinkedIn learning division, and that has, oh my goodness, thousands and thousands of online courses. And you can learn everything from the fine points of how to be effective with Photoshop to the broad brush things of how to be a more effective leader. So that's a big area. And then obviously, we have a lot of job listings and more than 4 million people a year get their jobs through LinkedIn. Is that right? 4 million? It, it's huge. Yeah. I remember when I was thinking about coming here, someone had made the point that you'll be working on a scale with more zeros at the end of the numbers than you've ever seen before. And it's quite exciting. You can really have an impact. Absolutely. So George, as you know, most of our young listeners are either in school or early in their careers. What advice do you have for them in terms of kind of the tactics, the insights in building a robust professional network? So... There's no end of people that can help you. And I think the first thing I'd say is cast a wide net. 
And obviously, your professors are a good starting point. Your career services team is a good starting point. The other one that I'd add that's absolutely crucial is to make good use of your school's alumni network, that people who've gone to the same school as you are much more inclined to be helpful, even if they've never met you in person. So if alumni are coming back to campus, go to their talks, go to their brown bag lunches, and then spend a little time chatting with them afterward. Learn how they got their careers started, pick up any advice you can, see if there's a chance to shadow them for a day at work or even just have a 20-minute informational interview. But that ability to strike up relationships with people in different settings. Where I work, I'll go get coffee on different floors sometimes just to see if I bump into people who might be useful. And that will sometimes work. If you're involved in church groups or sports teams or any civic projects, chat up people there. And the other thing I'd say is don't rush the relationship. I think we all find it a little tiresome if someone says, hello, what can you do to help me? But if there's more of a back and forth and a discovery of commonality, then people are much more likely to volunteer ways to be helpful. So try and make yourself useful to people. There's a power of reciprocity. They will want to do something to help you too. Absolutely. In fact, I just interviewed someone recently whose episode has not yet dropped. So it isn't out on time for coffee as of now, and it's the middle of June. He said what he tries to do is, to your point, George, look for ways to be useful to them. So in his outreach, he has said, I've noticed such and such. I could help you do whatever it is if you would like. So that the first ask isn't in fact something he's asking of them. It's an offer. My wife's company, one guy approached her and said, I'm looking at your mobile site. It looks pretty clumsy. Would you like me to help build it out? And how can you say no? And he was on the payroll full time within a couple of weeks. But there's simpler things you can do, even if you aren't a mobile engineering wizard. Something as simple as here's what I see as a person in my early 20s in terms of how I engage with your site here's or your company or your products. Just sharing your own learning journey. I mean, we're always curious, what does the world look like? What does our field look like to people going through college? And then just remember, enthusiasm is a huge asset, and people's enthusiasm level tends to get ground down a bit. Being in contact with someone who's coming out of school, who's excited about a field, that's contagious. If people pick up that feeling of energy that you've got, they'll spend more time with you. They'll try harder to look for ways that they can give back something in return for what really has been a pep talk for them. So George, before I ask you about your early career as a journalist, I would love to segue into your latest book, which is especially relevant to the Time for Coffee audience. It's called You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Degree. And in case you didn't pick up the sarcasm there, it's supposed to be sarcastic. And as I mentioned, I read this book. I absolutely loved it. Highly, highly recommend it. And one of the many takeaways for me, George, which really actually shocked me, was that you shared only about 5% of those who are graduating today are actually going into, or maybe in terms of those who are getting hired, only 5% are in the field of computer science. 
Yes. I mean, you, reading the media, you'd think that there are no jobs but tech jobs. And yeah, there's some terrific opportunities in computer science, but in the same way, there's some terrific opportunities in the National Basketball Association, but not everyone plays pro basketball on TV. What I found was there's a much larger constellation of jobs that surround tech. So for every software engineer, there are people who do sales, who do marketing, who do user experience work, who do design, who work in all sorts of ancillary fields to help make that tech accessible to people. But often it's bringing a, a humanist face to technology where the job count that's needed is the highest and where the skills of a liberal arts graduate are most valuable. Yes. So based on your reporting for this book and probably even based on the reporting you've been doing since you've gone to LinkedIn, where are the best career opportunities for young people with non-technical degrees? So I tick off seven or eight of them. I think about digital marketing, telling stories with numbers. And there, if you're a little bit numerate and are a good storyteller, those two pair together very nicely. There are always jobs in sales. We have, I think, 17 million people in the U.S. working in sales compared to about 11 million in manufacturing. And if you go through every factory and look at everyone standing next to a machine, there's fewer people doing that than there are selling. And sales runs everything from the low end of working as a retail store clerk to the high end of being someone who's earning a substantial six-figure salary doing high-level technical sales in medicine or tech or defense or other areas. And again, that ability to tell stories, to connect with people, a liberal arts degree is terrific. I found some of the very best salespeople I interviewed had English degrees. And as one of them said, every difficult customer is a character in a novel to me. And I figure out what their story is and what they're all about and how to connect with them. And that empathy and that level of understanding can make you very effective in business. We could run through a long list of other ones, but that'll give you two to start with. It's another reason to buy the book, folks. You can do anything. So you mentioned empathy, George. And in the book, you also talk about what you've now, I guess, assessed are among the most important traits to cultivate to ensure professional success, one of which is empathy. It is. And in fact, the three I talk about are curiosity, creativity, and empathy. And the point I want to make with curiosity is we are in a world where there's more and more that machines can do. And they can certainly play chess better than I can and better than most grandmasters can. But that's not really the high impact area. Uh, that's a very rules-based system. And people are still much better at exploring the new. I mean, before the artificial intelligence and the automation can come in, any field that's growing, that's developing, we don't know the rules yet. And the rules-based software systems are not going to figure them out for years or decades to come. So I would say, look for areas where your curiosity, your willingness to explore something unfamiliar is an asset. And then creativity, something as simple as coming up with appealing names for lipstick or cars or whatever. We have an ear. We know what sounds natural and warm and exciting. AI systems do not. It's actually clumsy and somewhat comical how far off course they'll go. Those tend to be the jobs that are most emotionally fulfilling, too. There's, there's a joy in creating something, whether it's building an artisanal table that's done in a way that IKEA cannot do it, or whether it's creating a poem or a movie or a documentary or anything. So that's valuable. 
And then empathy, just knowing what's going on in other people's minds, that ability to read the room. It's a very human trait, and it's essential in no end of areas. I mean, if you think about high-level government work, consulting, even in finance, I mean, the, we're still hiring stockbrokers and financial advisors, even though the formulas for where you should put your money are well-known and already built into computers. But you need to be able to connect with that person who's trying to figure out, am I excited? Am I scared? How do I feel about the markets? What are my life goals? And if you can understand that person on the other side of the table, you can be very successful. You have so many fun titles, speaking of using your creativity, one of which is, and this is chapter titles, you can start anywhere. (laughs) It's such an important lesson. What did you mean by that, George? And can you give us an example of how someone can start anywhere in their career? Boy, it's almost a challenge to figure out how to, to pare it down to one or two tellable stories. I think the key point is once you get into a line of work, the chances for promotions, for connecting with someone become much better. I tell the story of Andy Andereg, who is now working as a high-level consultant in Santa Monica, California, right on the ocean. But she did not start there. And she started doing mechanical entries for Groupon, the discount shopping site back when it was bigger than it is today. And she came in for 31000 a year. And then she started helping them on their recruiting and she helped them on their training manuals. And they started to go, you know, you're good. You should be running a team of people and that gets you a promotion. And then you're really good. You should be running all the teams. Once you get into a place, you'll get to know the culture. You'll figure out where you can be most effective. The two examples that I mentioned are not random. They're actually ones that are extremely good for people who are in their first year or two at a company. One is going back to college and helping the recruiting efforts of the next generation. You know what it's like to be a college student. The executive in their 40s and 50s does not. You'll be a more effective person to be talking. And if you're representing the company at a recruiting event, you're adding value. You're demonstrating that you're more important. And then the other is training materials. I mean, most companies have woefully insufficient training materials. They tend to be treated as stepchildren. Everyone's too busy to explain how to do it. So the result is no one knows how to do it. And if you've got the initiative to help build those materials, try and make sure you get paid for it, either in cash bonus or a step up in your own pay. But you'll become known as that indispensable, valuable person. Everyone's going to want you on their team. And then you're in a much better place to rise. Who better to know what the training materials should be than someone who's just learned the skill? Absolutely. In your book, George, you also talk about something relating to you can start anywhere as you build your career, and that is the value of a jagged resume. You talk about the zigs and zags that so many of us who are farther along in our professional journeys have taken. Could you elaborate just quickly on why the twists and turns based on your research are in fact so valuable? So that's a great way to learn perseverance. And when I look at what companies want, they want people who can work through the hard stuff. If you've had nothing but success the first time you come up against something that's not going to be a success, that's very daunting. If you're someone who has regrouped, who has trained in a new field, who knows how to pick themselves up, then you're just going to be more effective. And a lot of business is working your way through the hard stuff, trying four or five different ideas, the first three or four of which don't work until you get to the good ones. So and I find the, the grit question, the resilience question 
is becoming a bigger and bigger part of job interviews. Don't be bashful about times where you ran into a wall and you had to regroup. That actually can make you a more valuable employee. I'd like to ask you where you have tapped into the grit and the perseverance and the resilience in your own career and how you came through the other side. So I've got two, and I'll allude to the first, and I'll tell you the second one in more detail. So the first book I wrote, I actually did not deliver what my editor wanted at the initial publishing house, and we got very sideways. And that was humiliating and frustrating, and I had to regroup, refund some money, and then find an editor who was on the same wavelength as me. And it ultimately came out wonderfully. The book is still in print, but that was very much a lesson of you're not going to get along with every boss. And sometimes the best thing to do is just unplug on any basis and then start over with someone who believes in you. And then the second one, you know, much like you, I worked in an industry with a lot of turbulence. And there came a time at the Wall Street Journal that was bought by new owners that what they wanted to do and what I wanted to do were quite different. And it was time to do something different. And as I moved on, I set up my own shop, did a lot of interesting project work and public speaking work and book work. But the big impact of having to build a brand of one rather than living under the big umbrella of the Wall Street Journal is I couldn't just bombard people with messages saying, you must talk to me because I am the Wall Street Journal. I wasn't the Wall Street Journal anymore. I was just George. But I found that I could be effective as long as I was friendly, as long as I was supportive. And I would say most of the network of contacts and friends, and I really use the two words almost interchangeably. Most of that network came into life in those first few years after the journal. And I realized that when you have to do it on warmth and personality, it's actually more fulfilling. Uh, And there's less room to intimidate, but there's a lot more room to befriend. And that's actually a better way to go through life. Oh, what a great story and what a wonderful moral to that story, George. So we're getting down to the last two questions here. I know you went to Stanford University and you majored in economics. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I had no idea. And I ended up going for a lot of job interviews. I, uh, I got turned down for a chance to make car loans at Citibank. I, I flunked the coffee test. This is actually kind of coming full circle. The uh, person who interviewed me wanted to know if I wanted coffee and whether I wanted milk or cream and, and a bunch of other things. Every time I made a choice, she went the other direction, and then I got all flustered and switched my decision. And finally, she just looks at me and goes, you know, if you're having trouble with the coffee question, I don't think you're going to be very good at making loans, which is probably true. But anyway, that is the coffee question. If they still ask it, I hope they don't. Stick with your choices and be friendly. But to loop back what you really wanted to know about. No, I think you come out of college and you could go a million different directions. I love journalism in college. I spent as much time at the college newspaper as I did in the classes, probably more. And the chance to work for a business publication seemed like a really good way to pair the two. But that was a goal that took shape only partway through senior year. And that was after being told that I was not suited to make car loans. Well, thank goodness for that. So final time for coffee question, George. If you could go back to Stanford and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? So I actually go in a different direction on this than just about everyone else. I've thought about it a couple of times because I do get asked it. I don't think I'd change anything, including some of the dumbest things I did, because They were just the right size mistake for me to go, oh, I actually should never do that again in my life. And I think if I'd cleaned up my conduct at age 19 or 20, I just would have run into bigger walls later. So 
you know, accept the fact that you're going to make some foolish decisions in college and pass up opportunities. I think the only thing I'll offer you that would have been different, my very last term, I ended up in a group project with a bunch of students from overseas. And I had no real awareness of how deep and rich the overseas student community was. And I was belatedly discovering people who grown up in Iran or Ethiopia or Mexico or what have you. I was going, these are fascinating people, and why have I not gotten to know them? And the answer is, of course, I'd stayed with people who were very similar to me, and that was my circle of friends. So I guess my advice would be get to know some of the people who've come from very different backgrounds. They're admirable, and you can learn a lot from them, and it's also a way just to widen your network and a little bit of courtesy to people who are having to speak a different language and eat a different cuisine is very much appreciated. They will be strong friends, and it doesn't take a lot to build that. That is such wonderful advice, and it really goes back to the earlier point that you were making about how to develop a network while you're still at college, and then once you graduate, getting involved in your alumni network and whatnot. But you're absolutely right to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone, and you will be the wiser and the richer, and I don't mean necessarily monetarily, for having gone through that. George, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee, whether you like it with milk or cream, it does not matter to me. You are such a wonderful wealth of insight and wisdom His book, You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Degree, is something that our young listeners will benefit from no matter what their major, even if they ended up studying the sciences. George, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm really glad we got to do this. And thanks for giving me permission to order coffee my own way. I I feel secure now. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.